0: So, as we begin this, we're going to start moving into the battle. Again, at the beginning of chapter 6, verse 13, he says, Mighty man of valor. If you're a mighty man of valor, that means you're a man for war. You're a man fit to do battle. The angel says he's going to use Gideon to save Israel from Midian as one man. So, a fight's coming. And beginning in chapter 7, this fight is going to start unfolding before us. So I'm going to read through it again as always, and we'll 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 work our way through it. So, Judges chapter 7, verses 1 through 3 says this, Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the well of Harad, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them, by the hill of Morah, in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you, are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So at the very beginning here, we have then Jeroboam, that is Gideon. We have both names being used. We have God's man, Gideon. Gideon means to cut down or to thresh. And that's what he's going to do here. He's going to come in and he's going to cut down. And then you have Jeroboam, let Baal plead, or let him contend for himself. Let him defend himself. Gideon is going to come in and cut down the heresy, cut down the lies, cut down the pagan religion in the land. And I don't know if you've never noticed this. I don't know if this has been something that has ever stuck out to you. It's been very obvious to me at times. But when God asks us to step up, when he asks us, asks us to answer a call, there's usually more than one angle or more than one, kind of one, uh, one thing happening, one angle at play. Both names are used here. Gideon is going to come in, and he is going to cut things down. And at the same time, the false god is going to have to defend himself if he's the real god. And the heresy is going to be proven to be false. And God's man is going to be proven to be the one who can truly cut things down, to thresh down. So again, like we mentioned the camels before, I always like looking at these little details. They encamped by the well of Harad. Not a big deal at face value, right? Well, let's look at the meaning. Harad actually means fear or terror or trembling. So remember, the army, 135,000 Midianites. As numerous as locusts, their camels were without number. Massive army. Gideon and his small contingency of men, they decide to camp, in my opinion, in the most unlikely of places. They encamped next to the fear of terror, next to the fear of trembling. Now, if I was facing an army of 135,000 and I had a small percentage of that behind me, I don't think I would make my, my, my base of operations at the location known of fear. I wouldn't want to start working or start operating out of fear. Yep, Gideon decides that's where they're going to make their encampment. Again, man's perspective. Well, it's okay. It doesn't matter. There is a fear there. We see here, we're going to, we're going to see how many people are, are, are here. There's going to be 32,000 men. 32,000 versus 135,000. Man's perspective. My perspective would be that of fear. And so they make their encampment at the well of terror, the well of fear or trembling. I love it in verse two and three, verses two and three, when God kind of shows up and we kind of get the ha, we knew that was coming, God. When he says, Listen, the people that you got with you, they're too many. You have too many people. And Gideon's like, Are you serious? There's 32,000 of us. And there's 135,000 of them. And this is too many? Put yourself in Gideon's shoes at that point. You have these ill-trained and unequipped men versus camels. We've talked about that. The the imposing force of the camels. You have shovels versus spears. You have farmers versus a trained army. 32,000 versus 135,000. And God is saying it's too many. It's too much. Now, if this isn't evidence enough, you can look at it all throughout the scripture. You can look at it probably throughout your life. God loves to stack the deck. God kind of loves to play the numbers. God loves to set things up so much so, and he loves to narrow things down so much so, that there's no question that when things work out, who is doing it? the odds are so against Gideon and the Israelites already at 32,000 versus 135,000, the odds are not in their favor. They are not with them. And God is saying, too many men, too much. Because here's the reality. If there is any opportunity at all, we will touch, we will take the glory for ourselves. We will look at something that the Lord is doing and go, man, look what I did. God, you are smart by choosing me to do that, but look what I did. We'll take the glory. We'll touch the glory. Something that we should never, ever do. When this is all done, God wants the people to know who he is again. He wants the people, the Israelites, his people, to remember him. Not the soldiers, not Gideon, not the the victory or defeat, but him. Even with with 32,000 versus 135,000, God knows that the Israelites will take the credit for themselves. And so a simple command is given in verse 3. If you're afraid, go home. If you're scared, leave. This isn't something new. Again, there's nothing new under the sun even back then. Deuteronomy 20 verse 8 says this. The officers... Shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his. Fear is a very powerful emotion. It's a very powerful feeling. It's a very impactful feeling. If I'm afraid, how many other people can I impact around me? If I'm afraid, Is that fear going to poison my fellow fellow brothers and sisters? Our attitude of unbelief, our attitude of a lack of faith or a showing of lack of faith is very contagious. I don't know, guys. I don't think we're going to be able to do this. I don't think God's going to be able to pull this one off. That attitude starts to spread. It becomes very contagious. And eventually it spreads so much to the point where the people become very useless. They become become very unable. When one person starts to worry and they are afraid, it affects everyone around them. So very simply, the Lord said, talk to the people, Gideon, and say, if you're afraid, you need to leave. And so the message is communicated, and what do we see happen? 22,000 people leave. 22,000 men pack up and head out. Now, I believe, I would say, that the same people who would have been prideful, the Lord is now saying are the ones that are also fearful. Those 22,000 men would probably have been the ones that would have said, look what we did. Look what we were able to do. But God is revealing their heart and saying, ah, but their their hearts are full of fear, so they need to leave. It's, It's kind of interesting when you look through the Scripture, when you look through your life, when you look just in general, the relationship between fear and pride. They always seem to go together. You know, that attitude of, well, what will people think? I can't do that because, well, there's a fear there, but there's also a pride involved. I can't go out looking like that. What is fill in the blank going to think of how I look? There's fear and there's pride. Our, <coughs> our sense of fear is usually dictated by what people think or what people think. Sorry, not only what people think, but what I think of myself and how I will respond. But we're not to live in fear. Second Timothy 1, seven says this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Let me say that again. He has not given you, he has not given me a spirit of fear. But he has given us one of power, of love, and of a sound mind or a peace-filled mind. Now, do you want a spirit of fear? Or would you rather have one of love and of peace and of power? Now, I would like to have one of peace, love, and power. That's from God, not fear. If fear is involved, you have to ask, Lord, where are you at in this? He has not given us a spirit of fear. So if fear is involved, if you're afraid of something, say, Lord, check my heart right now. Where are you at? Am I holding on to you? Am I looking to you? Am I I clinging to you or am I trying to do it on, am I trying to do it on my own instead? And we all know that without faith it is impossible to please God. And when you look at these numbers, when you look at the odds, there's a measure of faith that is required of these men. and when faith is not present, you have to ask yourself, is it pleasing to God because Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, what is faith? We know this. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. What's evidence? Evidence is something that you can kind of look at, that you can can check into a registry. You can kind of show, because of this, I can have hope. It's the evidence of things that we hope for, and it's the substance, the things that we can touch, of the things that aren't seen. How do I see faith in my life? Can I touch faith? No, you can't touch faith, but you can watch it grow, bloom, and blossom in your life and those around you. When you see people take big steps in their life of trusting the Lord, you see their faith in action. Sometimes your faith is seen as simply going to church, whether it be here or online, whether it be in a building or in your living room on a computer, going to church sometimes is a step of faith because you're you're saying no to you and saying yes to God. God. And when we say no to ourselves and say yes to him, that's a measure of faith because we're saying yes to something, to someone that we can't touch, we can't see, we can't have a verbal conversation with, but yet we're putting our trust and our hope in that person. That's faith. So 22,000 men leave. 22,000 men whose fear and pride say, time to go. And now the odds are at 13 to 1. For every 13 Midianites, there's one Israelite. Not good odds. But we're not done. God has a very particular test for the rest of these men. Verses 4 through 8. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. You can imagine Gideon going, Really, God? Are you serious? The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them there for you. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue like a dog, you shall set him apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink and the number of those who left putting their hand to their mouth was 300 men. Now we're going to stop there for a second. We'll pick it back up in a moment. Still too many. There's only 10,000 men left, but that's still too many for God to receive the glory. There's still too many people involved that even on a fluke, they could potentially pull this out still. So 10,000, too many. We rarely think that, I'm going to use a very grammatically incorrect sentence here, so if you're offended, I'm sorry, you can yell at me later, but we rarely think that bigness can be a hindrance to God. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by a, that our bigness can hinder Him? Well, sometimes... I'm not saying everyone, I'm not saying you or me, or I'm not saying anyone specifically, but sometimes we look at our effectiveness or our faith by the amount of zeros and dollars and cents in our checking account. The more dollars in there, the more faith we can have. Well, I can do lots of things for God. You're right, are you? Well, I would, I would invest into that, but I've, I've worked so hard to save all this, so I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to keep it over here for now. God can do something else or he'll use something else. Or sometimes we get so, you know, so networked that we have all these connections and we have all these these abilities and these avenues into people's lives. But you know what? I don't want to offend, offend my friends. I don't want to do anything to hurt those relationships. So I'm just going to keep God out of it. And sometimes our bigness can hinder what he would like to do through us and in us. When we are big, it is possible to do a lot in human resources and we can give the credit to God. But the question is, is he the the originator of those actions, of that heart? Or are we just giving credit to God when really it's just ourselves? In the most ordinary circumstances of life, God is able to ascertain character. Character. In the most ordinary circumstances of life, the things that we wouldn't do in front of other people, how we handle money, what we watch, where we go, how we treat other people, how we act in traffic, I'm guilty of that one. I live three minutes away and I want to get there in one minute. (laughs) God's able to ascertain our character. Now what's character? One of my, my mentors would say, character is who you are when no one's watching. Another person, I don't remember who it was, I've read it somewhere, but, but I've, I've read this saying the character of, ma- of a man is valued or is seen in what he laughs at. And in a world full of memes and, and, and gifs and all these opinions out there, we can find ourselves laughing or entertaining things that maybe we shouldn't as men and women of God. But God here is going to ascertain. He's going to judge. He's going to reveal the character of these men. He is saying, Gideon, I will try them for you. Let me do this. I will reveal to you their hearts. And how is an outward action going to reveal a heart? Well, we're we're given the answer. It's in 1 Samuel 16.7. 1 Samuel 16.7 says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. Because I have refused him, for the Lord does not see as man sees. Man, us, we look at the outward appearance, but the Lord is looking at the heart. So even though these men, they're drinking water, doesn't seem like much, God is able to look at their hearts and understand the type of man that they are, not from their outward actions, but from their internal character. So picking it up in the end of verse 6. And the number of of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So what do we have here? We have this picture where we have these 10,000 men coming down to the river. We're, out in, you know, we're in the Middle East, we're in Israel, and so it's going to be hot, it's going to be arid, it's going to be dry, and they're probably in, you know, in their armament, in their gear, it's going to be tiring and exhausting. So they see water, and like we all do, we rush to the water to get replenished. Well, some of these men are kind of crouching down and pulling the water up to their face. While you have a larger group of men, they're full on dogging it, their heads are in the water lapping up that dog, they can't, they're lapping up the water like a dog, they can't get enough of it. And what do we see here? God's choice or Gideon's choice? Well, what would Gideon say? Gideon would say, give me the 32,000 men. But right now, with 10,000 men, God is saying, okay, the 9,700 men that acted like a dog and that were so focused on the water, they can go away. And the 300 men that pulled the water up to their face, they're the ones that I'm going to use. At this point, I don't even agree with God's perspective. 300 men? but God's choice 300 remain and 9700 are told to leave. Now the Israeli army was less than 1% of its original size and the odds are now at 400 to 1. 400 Midianites to 1 Israelite. That it does not have that does not bode well for any level of victory whatsoever. One of my favorite commentators G. Campbell Morgan said this in his commentary about this this story. He said this, There are times that we can spend unnecessary time with necessary things. There are times that we can spend unnecessary time on necessary things. Water was necessary for these men. It was a necessity. They needed water to sustain them out in the desert. However, 300 men understood understood the circumstances. They were aware of the 135,000-man army of the Midianites. I'm sure they were probably watching Gideon, looking to their leader, making sure he was okay, waiting for the next direction, the next command. They were aware of the enemy. They were keeping their eyes out. Do we understand the times that we are in? You know, we've been talking about... COVID for so long now, it's almost like, when did this start? When is it going to end? I don't know. It just is. There's these social injustices. There's a global community that's drastically changing. Countries that are, are investing into the military infrastructure still unrest in the Middle East. Are we understanding the times that we live in? Or are we spending an unnecessary amount of time on necessary things? My life, my family, my home, they're necessary things. But the Pollock house is not the end all to this world. And if my focus ends there or ends here in this place, then I'm not really focusing and understanding the times that we're living in. You know, we look at different components of our life. You know, I love to cook. Actually, I love to barbecue. I love to smoke more than anything. You give me some ribs, some brisket, ham, whatever, oh, I'll smoke that all day, and I'll make people happy at night. I love cooking, especially barbecue. How many networks, how many shows, how many, how many vine- uh, avenues are there right now for cooking in America? And I, I, I'll say this just honestly myself. I love watching those shows. They're great. My daughter loves watching Cake Wars and Cupcake Wars and all the decorating competitions. It's wonderful. We have an overabundance of it. But then you look at the rest of the world. Get a global perspective. And how many people would love just for some of the crumbs of some of those shows. Just to get by on that day. Sometimes we get so enthralled with our bigness and our resources, and what we have available to us, that we're losing sight of what's going on in the world around us. As Christians, there are lots of ways that we can spend unnecessary time with necessary things. I believe that Jesus can come back at any moment, and I think you do too. But now we have to all ask ourselves, are we living that way? Are we bringing the water to our mouths and keeping our eyes out on the horizon, paying attention to what's going on, or are we just inundated with the life around us, dunking our head in the river of life right now and not really paying much attention to everything going on? In Judges chapter 3, verse 2, if you look back, it, we read that kings were left in the land so the Israelites would learn how to battle. The verse, uh, verses 1 and 2 Sorry, say this, Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars of Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formally known it. The other book that we're going through with me that I'm taking you guys through is Joshua. Joshua had to learn how to battle with prayer. If you look at the Jordan River, if you look at Jericho, If you look at the story of the sun and moon in the valley of Agilon, they had to learn how to do war, how to battle with prayer. They had to learn how to do war on their knees. The physical battle, that was a secondary event. The primary task or the primary event was whether or not they found the Lord first. Were they obedient to the Lord first? If they didn't do that, then they would fail. But if they did, they succeeded. And now hundreds of years later, here in Judges, the Lord is seeking to draw these men, draw this nation, draw his people back to himself. They had to learn how to do war. Verse 8. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men And now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So at 300 versus 135,000, what do we see Gideon's priorities are? I would assume shields and spears and swords and, you know, bow and arrow and all the armament and all the horses or whatever he can get. Nope. Food and trumpets. Sounds like he's going to a concert in the park instead of a war. His two main concerns were food and trumpets. Not the way, not the perspective that I would have in going into battle. But Gideon has been learning all throughout this time that he can't do things his way. He is a, he is a man in, in and of himself. He is who he is, but he has to be given over to the Lord. He has to be God's man. In these next three verses, 9, 10, and 11, we're going to kind of see a, again one more battle of perspective. So verse 9, And it happened that on that same night that the Lord said to him, said to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men, Who are in the camp. Verse 9: Very important. Arise, go down against the camp, for I past tense have given it into your hand. This is the prophetic past tense. It's already done in history. Gideon now just has to walk it out. The battle is over. All that is now necessary is for Gideon to move forward. God's perspective, the Midianites, they're not even a thought, they're not even a problem, they're not even a concern. Gideon is the problem. we got to get him on board. we got to get his heart turned over. And if he can be turned, everyone else can follow in what the Lord has already done, the victory that the Lord already has. Gideon is known by the Lord, and the Lord says, but if you're afraid. Again, let's look all the way back at the beginning. God says, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm the least. I'm from the weakest. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. And God is saying, no, you're my man. You're my choice. I have chosen you. Gideon understands and he realizes that he has a face-to-face encounter with the Lord, that the Lord tells him, I'm going to use you to save this nation. And Gideon responds in fear, fear of death, and God has to confirm to him and, and encourage him, say, no, 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 peace. Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is my peace. So Gideon has to come back and, and live in that peace. And as the Lord says, go tear down the altar of Baal that's in your father's house. Clean out the sin that's in your house. Remove the idolatry from your home. Gideon is afraid. You can't hide your obedience to the Lord. You can have that temporary focus or that eternal focus. Gideon was focused on the temporary. He was looking at the response and the result of man, not the, not the eternal impact of removing sin and idolatry from his house. And as he tears down the altar and the men want to kill him, his dad steps up. His dad who should have been stepping up the entire time as the, the, the custodian of Jehovah, Jehovah is my strength, who is now leading or taking care of the worship of idolatry. He should have stepped up, but he, he kind of steps in for his son and says, No, 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 don't lay a hand on him. If Baal's a real God, he'll take care of him. You don't worry about him. Don't kill my son. And even after all that, Gideon's like, You know what? I'm not questioning you. I don't think that what you said is wrong. I, I just need some more encouragement. So he lays out a fleece. And it's like, God, if this is really what's happening, could, could you just give me some encouragement? Obviously, God meets him there. And through all of that, verse 10, but if you are afraid, God still knows this man. God still knows that there is an aspect, a component of Gideon that still needs to be fully given over to him. The battle in his heart, the battle in the heart of Gideon is much more difficult than the fight on the battlefield. Gideon is still needing some encouragement and the Lord is completely right there at that moment to meet him in his time of need. God really wanted Gideon to find encouragement in this visit to the enemy's camp. This shows that when God asks us to do hard things for him, he doesn't just fold his arms and say, all right, you go do that. Go ahead, you go. No, no, he goes right along with us and encourages us along the way. He says, come on, you can do this, son. Let's go. And he's right there with us the entire time. He's there to guide us, to keep us, and to encourage us all the way. So Gideon receives encouragement, but he receives it from the most unlikely place. Verses 12 to 15. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. Their camels were without number, as sand by the seashore in multitude. If you've ever been to the shore, which I know most of you have, the sand, as numerous as the sand on the shore, it's a lot of people. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. And he said, I've had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. And it came to a tent and it struck it so that it fell over and turned and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, into his hand. God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. So, what do we have here? We have Gideon and Pura. They sneak up. They, they sneak up close enough to hear these men talking. Again, you have an encampment of 135,000 soldiers, plus all of the servants, all the livestock, the camels. You have, it's a very large entourage that's going on. So, it, it makes sense that two men could kind of sneak up. They're not going to worry about two men kind of crawling around in the bush. So, Gideon and Pura, they sneak up close enough to hear these men talking. Now, you want to talk about God's sovereignty, God's ability to be in control outside of our specific circumstances. You have this entourage, this encampment of 135,000 and all of the uh, attachments that go to that. And Gideon and Purah, they go right up to the fence, right up to the the encampment, the place where they hear these two men talking. Out of all 135,000 men, they heard these two. I think that's an amazing part of this story. And they tell the dream of this barley cake crashing into the camp of Midian. Well, barley was a very cheap grain. It was the lowest of the grain. So barley kind of represents humility or, or, or humbled people. Not humble as in, you know, they're, you know, the woe is me, but humbled as in ones that have been brought low. Ones that have been brought down. Or in this case, the impoverished Israelites the nation of God's people that have been in subjugation, that they've been brought down to a low place. And this barley cake crashes into the camp of Midian, and it hits a tent. But really, when you look at it in the Hebrew, it's the tent, which means the royal tent, or symbolically the strength of Midian. So you have this humble nobody, this impoverished aspect, this impoverished group, this barley cake, crashing into the camp of Midian, striking the power, the royal tent, and bringing it down. This vision meant that the camp of the Midianites would be knocked over by a humble nobody. Who did Gideon say he was? A humble nobody. Again, verse 14, very important. This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, into his hand God has delivered, past tense. Gideon hears finally from the Midianites exactly what God has been trying to tell him the whole time. Sometimes it's easier for us to believe the enemy, easier or more so than God himself. Here, Gideon is believing the enemy. He's believing what the enemy is saying, and what the enemy is saying is the exact same thing God's been telling him the entire time. God used this situation to build the faith of Gideon. And it worked so well that all we can do is see what he did in verse 15. So it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation. What did he do? He worshipped. He worshipped. And since then it says he returned to the camp. That means he stopped right there and he worshipped. His response was before the Lord Worshipping him. I'm sure there were tears in that moment. I'm sure it was that, that, that spiritual, that emotional, that mental kind of deep breath of, Okay, you got this. He worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and he said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered. Now he's speaking the language of the Lord. He's talking like the Lord is now. Has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. It's time to respond, people. It's time to worship. How many times have we questioned what God is doing? How often do we begin to question and doubt even before his plan is finished? He begins to reveal things to us and automatically we're like, nope, can't happen, not happening. And we haven't even given given him or given his plan a chance to unfold. So Gideon worshiped. And at that point, it kind of seems like, all right, this is great. We've kind of reached the pinnacle where everything from here on out is going to be wonderful. It's going to be easy to understand. We can follow it. Not a problem. Not true. Now we get to the battle plan. And if you do any study of, of, of siege, of war fighting throughout history, this is a horrible example of what to do. Verses 16 to 18. He divided the the 300 men into three companies, three groups of 100. And he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the the, the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. So no weapons here, no swords, no spears, no shields, no bow and arrow, no nothing. What's he taking these 300 men against 135,000 into battle with? A trumpet and a flashlight. A torch and a trumpet. But the trumpets that are here, they're not the silver trumpets of the army. They're actually the trumpets, the shofars, the trumpets of the priests. Showing that this is a spiritual or a religious battle. This isn't going to be something that is done by man. It's going to be something that is done by the Lord. And what was the kind of instruction? What was the command? Watch me and do as I do. Look at me and when you see what I do, you do the same thing. Well, in a lot of ways, that should be familiar to us because that's over in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now, Paul is not saying, and I'm not saying, you should be like me. You should be another version of John. That's not what that means. We don't need more versions of me running around this place. One of me is more than enough. What that means, however, is as I am living my life for the Lord, as I, am, as I am pursuing Him, you should imitate my pursuit of the Lord. I should imitate your pursuit of the Lord. We should imitate each other's pursuit of the Lord. And as we, as the body of Christ, run after and pursue after our Heavenly Father... We should all be mimicking and imitating that in our own lives. So, verse 18 says this When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, so his company of 100, then you also blow the trumpet on every side of the whole camp and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. That's the battle plan. That's it. Get your trumpet, get your flashlight in a bucket. And when I blow that trumpet, and when I pull out that flashlight, you do the same thing, and then I'll yell. That's how we're going to beat these guys. 400 to 1, but that's how we're going to win. It's moments like that. It's like, man, Lord, you, you are not only way smarter than me, but you are definitely more courageous than I ever will be. Trumpets and flashlights against an armed very heavily armed group of soldiers. I love the Lord when he does things like this. We're going to 19 to 23. This is going to be the last section of scripture we're going to we're going to go through. So Gideon and the 100 men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp and beginning and at, at the beginning of the middle watch just as they had posted the watch and they blew the trumpets and they broke the pitchers that were in their hands. So let's real quick pause there. So when did he come? He came at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted watch. So this is roughly between 10 p.m. and midnight. Okay, this this is the time frame that we're looking at between 10 o'clock at night and midnight. So you know, late late at night, not necessarily like in the middle of the night, like between that one to four a.m. But you know, 10 p.m. to midnight. You have to imagine probably a lot of the soldiers were were already in bed and sleeping, getting up for battle the next day. They want to be well rested and slept. And this was at the changing of the guard. So there was a little bit of commotion in the camp. There was a little bit of movement, movement and activity as, as the, the old guard or the post would come down and the new soldiers would take their place. So there was some activity going on. Verse 20. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and blow, broke the pitchers. And they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried out, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon! Imagine with me the chaos that must have been going on at this point. Now, if if you geographically kind of break this down, you'll understand these 300 men are up on top of a canyon wall. And the the soldiers, the Midianites, are down in the valley. So when you think about that, and I I kind of really enjoy looking at the science behind all of this, imagine with me, if you've ever been to, you know, think of the Grand Canyon, Something a lot smaller here at the Valley Valley of Jezreel. But think of, you know, a a, a cliff edge. And then when you yell, you you hear an echo. Now imagine a bowl, half a bowl-shaped or like a crescent moon-shaped valley with a canyon wall with 300 soldiers on it, blowing horns and yelling. What's going to happen? You're going to have this mass echo. Those 300 men through that echo are going to sound like a much larger force. Are going to sound like there's a lot more people going on than just... 300, and being that it's at the middle, it's in the middle of the night, 10 p.m. to 12 p.m. I'm going to assume, I'm going to hope, I'm, all surmise that God's gracious enough. He probably made that a little bit cloudy so they couldn't see exactly what's going on. The moonlight probably wasn't as, as bright. Again, conjecture, assumption, but I think that's how God works. So you have these 300 men on this valley all yelling, blowing a horn, and it's echoing. Or up on this canyon wall, and it's echoing down into the valley. Imagine the chaos, that commotion. Have you ever been in a place where, you know, either travel a long time and you're jet lagged, or you go to a new, you know, first time it's sleeping in a new house. Your alarm clock goes off and it's like a strange place. It's a different place. You don't really know what's going on. You haven't really gotten your bearings around you. Probably something like that's going on here. Verse 21 says this, And every man stood in, in, in his place, these are the Midianites, all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the entire camp. And the army fled to Bethacatia, towards Zerha, as far as, as the border of Abel-Maloa and Tabath. So, what do we have here? In the middle of all the chaos, the Midianites were fleeing But in the middle of their running away, in the middle of their their departure, what did the Lord do? The Lord set every man's sword against each other. Gideon and his men, those 300, they didn't have swords. The Lord turned the swords of the Midianites against themselves. And in verse 23, all the men of Israel gathered, gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, all of Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. So all the men that had left all those men that were afraid, all of those men that, that put their faces in the, in the river and being consumed with, with life, now rejoined back up and pursued the Midianites. And we would read, if you look ahead in, in verse uh, 10 of chapter 8, that that night 120,000 Midianites fell. There was only 15,000 left, and now 32,000 Israelites are in pursuit of 15,000. So again, we're looking at pr- perspective. We're looking at all of the different perspectives going on, from the battle plan to the the acting out of the battle plan, the results, all of this. And Gideon's life, in my opinion, really encapsulates the life of a believer. We're all called. We're all all kind of tapped on the shoulder at some point in our life of God saying, hey, I'm I'm choosing you. I want you to be mine. It's our response whether or not we, we, we take that We say, okay, I choose you because you've chosen me. And as we accept the Lord into our lives, he immediately starts to bring peace into our lives because there's a fear of, oh my gosh, I've seen the Lord. I've had this encounter. What's going to happen to me? No, no, he's going to bring peace. But as he brings peace, he also brings an action. His peace will bring action into our lives. Okay, John, calm down. It's okay, I'm with you. My peace is with you. But now, because you've chosen me, you've accepted me because I've chosen you, now I need you to go do stuff. Okay, Lord, I want to do stuff. Oh, not that stuff, though, because the, the, that's the stuff that man's going to cr- criticize me about. I'm, a, I'm scared of man. I'm fearful of what they're going to think of me. So, okay, fine. I'll do what you want me to do, but I'm not going to tell anyone about it. I'm going to kind of do it. It'll just be between me and you, God. No one else needs to know. But God knows, we know you can't hide your obedience. It's going to come out. It's going to be seen. And when it's seen, the people respond. The people react. Hey, knock it off. In a sense, we want to kill that person. A spiritual death. Stop living that way. Come live this way again. Live in a land of idolatry. Come over here. And as we are faced with the fear of man and our pride kind of steps up, we kind of need that encouragement from the Lord at times in our life. Saying, Lord, If you're with me, I need to know that you're with me. I'm not questioning you. I need that encouragement. And as that encouragement comes, the battles come. And he prepares us for war. Sometimes we get encouragement from the most unlikely places. Sometimes the, the words of the enemy actually bring comfort into our lives because it confirms what the Lord's been telling us. And then as we faithfully and firmly step out in our faith and in obedience we get experience the victory of the Lord so my question in all of this is which Gideon are we choosing to be are we choosing to be the one who is resisting the call of God in our lives are we choosing to be that one that's going you know what Lord I know I know you're asking this of me right now and I know I know you're calling me to yourself but I'm just not ready or maybe you're one that you've accepted the call of God. You've accepted God's call in your life, but you want to keep it secret. You want to keep it hidden. You don't want it on full public display yet. Or maybe you've accepted God's call, but you don't have the faith to see it through. All right, Lord, I know what you want me to do. I'm convinced this is what you want me to do. I just can't do it. I'm sorry. Or hopefully, we can work through all of that. And, and maybe we're the one, maybe we're the Gideon, that experiences victory through fully trusting God and believing in His promises and not in our abilities. In our brokenness, He is always there. Brokenness is one of those words that we don't like as Christians. It's kind of that brokenness and transparent, that transparency. We don't like those words. We don't like to be exposed. But it's in that being exposed, in that transparency, in that brokenness, that he can be the one holding us together. It might be a little bit of of, of imagery here, but I think we're in this story. Those clay pots that the torches were in, I think that's us. I think we're these earthen vessels. And we have this light inside of us. But until we're broken and that light shines out, it has no impact into the darkness of this world. It has no impact on the enemy around us to make them flee. But in that state of being broken and that light shining out, now we can have an impact into our world. So which Gideon are we choosing to be? Are we willing to accept the call of God in our life and to follow after him with all that we have? Like every other message on Gideon, we're going to end with the same quote. D.L. Moody, the world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by the man or woman who is fully consecrated to him. My prayer for you tonight is that you will become wholly consecrated to him. And that you in your life will be able to fully see what he can do through you, in you, with you, and by you. Not just in your own life, not just in your family's life, but in this world around us. Amen? Let's pray.